Welcome to On The Money, where you can find out anything and everything to do with finance, business and the economy. On The Money is broadcast live from the studios of Radio 2SER nationwide on the Community Radio Network. I'm Daniel Ellison and coming up on the program... Not only does the individual who provides the advice need to obviously be appropriately qualified, trained and giving quality advice, but they also need to be supported by uh, a licensee to enable them to give quality advice. Advisor Ratings announced last week the establishment of an external ratings committee designed to assess and rate the 2200 financial advice license holders in Australia. Also on the show... To put it another way, it's not the right way of thinking about the government's finances to talk about taxing and spending. It's the other way around. Modern monetary theory has been gaining a lot of traction lately, particularly amongst left-leaning politicians. With the economy growing at an anemic pace throughout the developed world, people are increasingly looking for new solutions. All this and more coming up on On The Money. But first, the Me Too movement rocked the film industry, but it has also heavily impacted the business and finance worlds. Daniel Logue, Associate Professor at the UTS Business School, is researching a new movement in the business innovation and entrepreneurship space called Gender Lens Investing. This movement has really taken off in the last 12 months, both overseas and in Australia, through the efforts of former Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, in partnership with the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs. Reporter Veronica Alashina has more. Do you know why, when a woman is involved in a car crash, she is 47% more likely to be seriously injured and 17% more likely to die than a man? Have you ever wondered why your female colleagues are always complaining that the office is cold? Well, there are answers to these questions now, thanks to the development of research initiatives which address the gender data gap and take into account gendered risks in areas such as business innovation, entrepreneurship, and investment. Until recently, investment risk analyses have been based on a standard, average model, just like the formula for standard office temperature was developed in the 1960s and is based on the resting metabolic rate of a 40-year-old man weighing 70 kilograms. Or cars and seatbelts are designed to accommodate a standard crash dummy based on the model of a six-foot male weighing approximately 79.8 kilograms. These standard measures are something that exist also in the business world. These assumptions and gaps in data are what Professor Danielle Logue and her gender lens investing research aim to address. So the impact investing space, it's really about building a market and building new financial products to finance solutions to social problems. So what I find really interesting as an economic sociologist is that it is bringing all these different players together, charities, philanthropists, uh, superannuation funds, VC firms, all these different people that are not usually at the same table having these conversations about how do we finance these new ways of organising and managing for social good. Professor Logue looks at impact investing with a particular interest in how products and platforms are being taken up in different markets. Her projects include looking at social impact bonds, civic crowdfunding platforms and social stock exchanges. 
Basically, she researches the value created at the intersection between social groups and stakeholders, and supply and demand. This includes the rise of gender lens investing. So I've been watching this movement in a way of gender lens investing arise, and even in the past six months, we've seen in the uh, M and A, the merger and acquisition space, investors starting to insert what they're calling Weinstein clauses after the Harvey Weinstein. Uh, scandals and the Me Too movement into their deals, so that they can claw back any funds should any、uh, scandalous revelations come about, because they're seeing that now as an investment risk. So this growth and attention in gender lens investing is actually incorporating gender risks into investment decisions the same way you incorporate other risks. Applying a gender lens to investment opportunities involves examining the entire value chain, from who is making the investment decisions and how they're making those decisions, to the development of services and product supply chains. There is a not-for-profit group, the Criterion Institute, who is really leading the charge and doing a lot of training in this space. And they work with the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in a lot of the impact investing projects,、uh, investing in women, which has been spearheaded by Julie Bishop, the for- former Foreign Minister. And the Criterion Institute actually suggests asking when you're making these investment decisions. What gender patterns are at play in the market that could impact both opportunity and risk? So, for example, if we included, say, girls' education rates or domestic violence rates, sexual assault rates, into an investment risk at a national industry level, how would that change our decision? And you might think about that in, say, some of the、uh, rates and discussions of.、Uh, Female violence in particular sporting codes. What would happen if you factored in that data into your investment decision? How would that actually change? And they also suggest asking, right, what's the comp- composition of the people making the investment decisions in terms of gender and also diversity as well? Who's doing the initial screening for who even makes it into the pipeline too? And other questions around. What are your processes like if you are acquiring really tight turnarounds? So there's not a lot of time for people to think through, and that's often the case when you're an angel investor or a venture capitalist. You're seeing lots of pitches from startups, hundreds across the year. Does a tight turnaround、um, actually amplify gender bias in your decision making? So it's about thinking through all of the entire process across the pipeline and the value chain. Gender lens investing is not just about encouraging investment in female-led enterprises. It involves thinking more holistically about women in the business and entrepreneurship space in ways we haven't before, filling in gender data gaps and including this new data in risk calculations. So I think we're seeing this movement and this approach gather steam because of the Me Too movement. But also because there's a lot more research and data coming out that says this isn't just about a moral case around gender lens investing and equality. There's a significant business case here. It makes business and investment sense. So we're seeing data coming out, concluding that women-owned startups are a better bet. We're seeing VC firms increasingly applying a gender lens. We had information and research out of the Wharton Business School saying there was in 2018 87 private equity venture capital、uh, debt funds that applied a gender lens, and this is you know, almost doubled from the previous year. And we're starting to see that growth coming from. Specifically, female-focused accelerator programs to help female-founded、uh, startups, such as She Starts, Springboard Enterprises, things like that. 
But I think the bigger push behind this has been the recognition of the missed investment and product opportunities when you take a gender lens as well. So there's been about US $1 billion invested into women's health technology over the past three years. There's a growing space described as femtech that's estimated to grow into a US $50 billion industry by 2025 as well. So there's a very strong business and investment case there. And what is the significance and impact of the type of research that Professor Logue is conducting? More broadly, what a gender lens approach reveals is this issue of a gender data gap. And I think the risks inherent in not having the right data when you're making decisions, there's a heightened risk of injury for females in car accidents because seatbelt designs are based on the average uh, weight and size of a male and things like that. So these types of average average uh, testing in product design and development is something that's really important to catch, I think, and, and be aware of. The different requirements of females in sectors such as health, medicine and science when you're doing product design, testing and development. And I think that's one of the important things that a gender lens is revealing, this gender data gap. That was Danielle Logue, Associate Professor at the UTS Business School, ending that report by Veronica Alashina. My name is François Carrière. I am at the UTS Business School and you are listening to On The Money, summing up finance in one easy bite. The financial services industry has come under immense scrutiny in the wake of the Royal Commission into Banking, with the role of commissions, a lack of transparency and regulation certainly coming into clear review. With all businesses and stakeholders in the industry currently wondering what their future may look like, one company is aiming to provide a credible, independent rating system for the 2.4 million Australians who have already invested $1.5 trillion in the financial services sector alone. But how will this be measured? And what kinds of powers would the regulator ASIC have to support this initiative? The Hain Royal Commission is expected to bring many changes to the Australian financial system, and one company has seen an opportunity to help make it even easier for consumers to get information about potential advisors. Advisor Ratings, which came into being in 2014 in the wake of the future of financial advice reforms, announced last week the establishment of an external ratings committee designed to assess and rate the 2,200 financial advice license holders in Australia, under whose licences there are 27,000 financial planners currently operating. The committee, reporting to the Board of Advisor Ratings, will consist of experts in finance with varied backgrounds. Chaired by Jerry Pawada, currently Professor of Finance at UNSW, the panel includes an ex-Deputy Chair of ASIC in Peter Kell, and the ex-CIO of Aon, Janice Sengupta. The idea behind such an esteemed panel is to ensure a reputable system of governance is in place, and to ensure that those forming those ratings can appreciate the challenges facing the industry in 2019. Mark Hoven, CEO of Wealth for Advisor Ratings, explains. We wanted to uh, ensure that the uh, licensee rating system had an appropriate level of uh, external oversight and governance, because of the importance of those ratings uh, 
to providing appropriate signals to the industry and to consumers. Uh, therefore, it was important to ensure that it wasn't uh, it wasn't simply a homegrown product, but it, it had the kind of uh, governance that you'd expect of something that was um, playing an important role in the industry going forward. Advisor Ratings' new committee is currently undertaking the process of determining the kinds of metrics that would provide useful information to the public. And the Ratings Committee, according to Mark, is consulting not only with the advisor community, but with numerous other stakeholders directly or indirectly impacted by the state of financial advice in Australia. Uh, groups like uh, professional indemnity insurers and insurers in general who are providing uh, support for these businesses, uh, the, the companies that provide the finance, to licensees and advice practices, the companies that are partnering with these licensee businesses and, and needing to think about counterparty risk. Uh, and then there are the uh, broad group of what we might call financial product manufacturers who include fund managers, life insurers, superannuation funds, uh, investment platforms, but what exactly should a new framework for advice provide for consumers? Dante Degori, the CEO of Financial Planners of Australia, believes the rating licensees will ensure that individual planners are supported more fully in their efforts to provide quality advice to consumers, which he believes could have a positive impact on the industry. And that would be useful for two things. One, the consumer, obviously, uh, in terms of understanding uh, though they might be attracted to the individual advisor um, around uh, the referral, if you like, but understanding the uh, firm or the group or the uh, um, or the organisation in which that advisor works for uh, could also be beneficial. And two, of course, for advisors themselves. Uh, many advisors like to work for firms and licensees that obviously uh, are, uh, share a similar value ethos um, and uh, will enable them to you know, to do their, to, to apply their trade as they like. So, um, so I think there could be some merit in that, yes. But how does one assess the quality of advice? Mark points to a holistic assessment of a particular license holder as providing a clear picture of the quality of advice a company can provide. That, that, that will range from things like financial stability. It'll look at the uh, types of advisors that are in that business uh, and their qualifications, skill sets and education levels. It'll look at some of the practices they have around setting investment philosophies and creating approved product lists. It'll look at things like the way in which advisors are onboarded or off-boarded. Uh, it'll look at the technology that they're deploying to operate their businesses, technology that's not just about efficiency but about monitoring uh, compliance and effectiveness, ensuring they're meeting the requirements and obligations they have under law. However, according to Dante Degori, a ratings company has to be very careful making claims about their ability to assess and rate individual pieces of advice given to a particular client by a particular licensee. What the rating agency is doing is actually not actually adjudicating quality. Um, they are, there are some things that they're looking at which might um, look at issues of quality, but they are not reviewing or looking at the actual quality of advice. There's no way they're doing that. Uh, and in fact, that's a you know that's the role of the regulator. But does the regulator ASIC assess the quality of advice currently given? One of the main takeaways from the Hain Royal Commission was that the financial services industry lacks transparency, and some, like Eric Kohlmeyer of CK Partners, question the efficacy of ASIC in enforcing behaviour in the existing industry. These institutions- 
institutions. Um, the, there was a, a, a questionable relationship, if you like, between the regulator bending over backwards to pacify large institutions. Um, so if we had a regulator that was regulating these large institutions, if we had the standard where the story of advice was broken up, and I, I am a huge fan of actually removing um, the advice arms of these institutions away from um, any uh, sales culture at all. However, Dante de Gori argues that ASIC's role isn't to create or assess standards of quality of advice. It's been scrutinised as heavily as the, uh, as the financial services industry itself in terms of their role as the regulator. They're a conduct regulator, so their job is to actually enforce the legislation, enforce the regulations, and ensure conduct um, is, uh, is, is according to the rules, uh, if you like, or, or the laws. One of ASIC's other roles through their Money Smart platform is to increase the level of financial literacy in Australia. It was highlighted this week that according to a survey commissioned by ASIC last year, 35% of Australians are overwhelmed by money and their own personal finances. For Dante and the FPA, while being cautious not to advocate for or against any particular company or program, they can certainly see the benefit in anything that could empower a consumer to make the right decisions for themselves. Again, any consumer should just always, uh, with everything, tread with caution and understand exactly what it is that they're looking at in terms of um, that piece of information and whether if it's helpful, great. If it's not, well then, that's that's okay too. But um, everything's designed to try and help you, but, you know... Um, everybody needs to um, consider how it helps them in their, in their own circumstances. That was Dante Degori, CEO of Financial Planners Association of Australia, ending that story. I'm Kevin Suarez, and you're listening to On The Money. You're listening to On The Money around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Daniel Ellison. Modern monetary theory has been gaining a lot of traction lately, particularly amongst left-leaning politicians. With the economy growing at an anemic pace throughout the developed world, people are increasingly looking for new solutions. In the last part of the series, we talked about how a job guarantee could work to help eliminate involuntary unemployment, and about the fact that federal government budget deficits year after year are normal as long as inflation is also under control. In the third and final part of this series, Vincent Sue asks Stephen Hale, Professor of Economics at the University of Adelaide, how a job guarantee as a part of MMT could help provide stability to the economy and about the potential risks of MMT. The job guarantee and spending on the job guarantee would be a counter-cyclical stabiliser for the economy. So when the economy picked up and there were more better-paying jobs out there in the private sector, then the job guarantee pool of workers would naturally shrink and so there'd be less spending on it. But if there was an economic downturn and people lost their jobs in the private sector or the non-job guarantee part of the public sector, for that matter, uh, rather than being forced into unemployment and poverty in some cases, um, they'd have the option of working in the job guarantee for a a minimum wage, which if you work full-time, and is, you know, that's more than twice what you get on New Start, for example. We've been talking about a lot of the advantages of MMT. Uh, well, I just want to turn that around a bit. What do you think are some of the things we have to be aware of when we're implementing MMT? Well, we don't have to implement it. That's the good news. In, uh, apart from the job guarantee, it's all there already. Uh, what I've just been describing is 
is monetary reality. It is literally the case that every dollar the government spends is a new dollar, increases the money supply by a dollar. It's literally the case that taxes just destroy dollars. It's literally the case that the government deficit is just the difference between the amount of dollars it spends into existence and the amount it takes back out of existence again. It is literally the case that the government's deficit is everyone else's surplus. It's literally the case that the government's debt, if you want to regard it as debt at all, is just the net saving in Australian dollars of everyone else. Um, to put it another way, it's not the right way of thinking about the government's finances to talk about taxing and spending. It's the other way around. The government spends money into circulation and then taxes some of that money back out of circulation again uh, in order to avoid there being too much money around, which would cause inflation. Um, What's the, the, the downside of this reality? Well, the downside of this reality is if, if you try hard enough, you can create hyperinflation. Um, but that's the case now, actually. Uh, if you could pass a budget through Parliament, if you were the Treasurer, if you could persuade politicians to support it, having got elected yourself, you'd be in a position now to spend beyond the productive capacity of the economy and to create inflation. So nobody is saying that we ought to do that. And the macroeconomic role of taxation is to ensure that doesn't happen. Given the level of public spending, there will be an appropriate level of taxation in our economy at any particular point in time in order to ensure that that government spending isn't inflationary. Um, so nobody's saying we don't need taxes. Nobody's saying there should be limitless government spending. What we are saying is the Australian government historically has nearly always run fiscal deficits, or at least for 80% of the time, that they'll be doing this in the future as well, and that all the stuff people hear in the election campaign about returning the government budget to surplus, about a debt and deficit crisis, about, I mean, you sometimes hear people talk as though the government at some point is going to have to fire all the teachers and nurses and close down the hospitals because they've run out of money or something. That's not just wrong, it's childishly wrong. The Australian dollar is created on the government's behalf by the Reserve Bank, but it's created by the Australian government. The Australian government cannot run out of dollars to spend. It can just run out of things to buy with those dollars. So I suppose, yes, what's the risk of this if people appreciate that this is the fact? Maybe the risk is that there'd be uh, too much pressure for higher government spending and all sorts of things and that we would end up with inflation. But I, I hope that under those circumstances, a, a government that behaved in that way would not remain in power very long. Modern monetary theory has been endorsed uh, particularly by a lot of left-leaning economists and politicians in recent, in recent years. Uh, what do you think makes modern monetary theory so attractive to people on the left? Well, it's, it's not exactly endorsed by people on the right, but they just, it, it, in many parts of the world anyway, perhaps, uh, I don't know whether this is true in Australia, but they just behave as though it's a fact. So Donald Trump, for example, um, went ahead with big tax cuts in the U.S. last year, and when people started criticizing him for that, he just pointed out, well, we can't run out of U.S. dollars unless we choose to do so. And he was roundly criticized and ridiculed by a lot of people on the left or in the center when he said that. Now, I abhor virtually everything that Donald Trump stands for, but on that one point last year, he was absolutely correct the right tends to feel itself able 
to deficit spend. Uh, they spend on the wrong things, or they give tax cuts to the wrong people. But Ronald Reagan behaved in a way which is entirely consistent with a modern money theory understanding of the economy. He ran big fiscal deficits and just didn't worry about them. Uh, and recently, that's what Donald Trump's been doing to a limited extent in the U.S. as well. Now, on the left, the establishment left are scared of being portrayed as irresponsible. Uh, they're terrified, particularly of asked, uh, different parts of the media. They're also terrified because for many years, the conservatives here and, uh, and overseas have wrongly argued that the conservative side of politics is in some way better at managing the economy. And many people on the left have, have they've been scared of being portrayed, as, as I said before, as being irresponsible. They've more or less bought in to the story the right have told. So invariably, they feel themselves obliged to promise that government will balance its books or run a surplus, or recently Chris Bowen has promised a larger surplus. Now, the great thing for people on the left to understand is that there is no reason for the government to promise a budget surplus, particularly in Australia at the moment. Uh, we have the world's second highest level of household debt. The private sector in Australia has debt up to its eyeballs. How are you going to push the economy ahead? Uh, the obvious thing to do, and the obvious, it should always, this should always have been the obvious thing, is not to rely on more private debt in what's already a fragile financial system, but instead to have the currency issuing government, the federal government, run deficits, and if we are still in deficit, which we marginally are at the moment, to run significantly higher fiscal deficits than we're running at the moment. Because our economy has a lot of spare capacity, is slowing down, the housing market is turning down, um, there is the risk that if we don't have a realistic reassessment of the role of fiscal policy in our economy, we are going to sink unnecessarily into recession with rising unemployment and all the problems that causes. That was Professor Stephen Hale from the University of Adelaide, ending that report by Vincent Sue. You're listening to On The Money Around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Daniel Ellison. That's all we have time for on On The Money this week. Tune in again next week to find out everything you need to know about finance, business, and the economy. Thanks to producers Vincent Sue and Veronica Alashino, and a very special thanks to our executive producer, Roderick Chambers. On the Money is produced in the studios of Radio 2SER for the Community Radio Network. You can find all our shows and stories at 2SER.com forward slash on the money. Also, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. New episodes are coming out every week. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Look for the at OnTheMoney2SER and find us on Facebook and Instagram for more updates. I'm Daniel Ellison. We'll be back again next week to give you the inside running on all things financial. Thanks very much for your company.